I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story. I want to thank Marty for leading Give Me the Bible. I asked uh, for him to lead a song kind of generally about the Bible, because tonight we're going to talk generally about the Bible. And I also want to thank Seth for reading our scripture reading there, particularly in Luke chapter 24, verse uh, 44, we see Jesus referring to all the things written about, about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And this, this corresponds to the, the three divisions that... Uh, that the folks back at that time considered when they would think of what we would call the Old Testament, the, the uh, Hebrew Scriptures. And so he's talking about all these things in the Old Testament that refer to him. And so I um, wanted to, to think about that, but even a little more broadly than that. You know, as a, as a kid, I was fortunate enough to grow up in the church, so, so I went to Bible class and learned all the stories as a kid. And I, I feel like Sometimes maybe we don't cover those stories as much as adults, and they become these faint memories, and, and, and maybe it doesn't make sense to, to fit in. And, um, and I've talked with some others of you that kind of feel the same way, where how does this all fit together? And, and so I hope, um, well, I'll tell you, this was a helpful study for me to go through this, and I hope that it's helpful for you as we would look through these things together tonight. So Bible overview, how does it, how does it all fit together is, is sort of the idea here. So the purpose of my lesson tonight is, is twofold, to, to bring structure and simplicity to, to really what's a complicated and large book. You know, we, we can, my Bible's not really that big, but it's, you know, there's a lot in there, <laughs> each of our Bibles, you know, there's a lot of pages to that, a lot of, lot of different books. So I want to uh, take the perspective of a chronological overview of these books. And so we'll look, we'll actually have a slide for each book or sometimes sets of books, uh, not a full outline, certainly not reading the whole books, but just sort of an overview of some of the things that are in there and tie it to a chronology so that it all hopefully makes sense together. And then, and then sort of grab a representative verse from that uh, to kind of get, get a flavor of what's going on. And really, as my last point here is to see the Messiah or the Christ, Jesus namely, to see him as the theme of the Bible as he truly is. And so a lot of these verses that we'll draw from particularly from the Old Testament, will draw our attention to Christ. So we don't want to be overwhelmed by the Bible. We want it to be uh, our bread and butter. We want to be people of the book. So as the, the scripture reading we had there that Seth read, we had to see that reference to the law of Moses, to the prophets and the Psalms, or, or the writings as they were called. The Psalms was the largest part of that section of the writings referring to those as the Scriptures. He's talking about that, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And I call that the Gospel. That's the Gospel. That's how Christ came to be our sacrifice. And He rose from the dead. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. And, and so, He's saying here, Jesus is saying here, the Old Testament talks about these things. Use this... Uh, this graphic in one of my other lessons, um, 
in this familiar graphic, I think a lot of our, our lesson books, especially as kids, I think in the back of the books, a lot of times it'll have sort of this bookshelf of the Bible, and we have it broken into these different categories. We have, um, the old, in the Old Testament, we have the law and the history, the books of poetry. We have the major and the minor prophets, and we might just point out that the major are major because their books were bigger, and the minor prophets are shorter little books, kind of why we call them that, not that they're less important. The New Testament, of course, we have uh, the gospel and then history, referring to the book of Acts, or we might lump all of that as, as history. It's talking about the life of Christ and then the early church. And then Paul's letters, uh, namely those to churches and those to individuals, and then just general letters sort of speaking to the church in general, speaking very directly to us today as part of that general idea of the church. And then, of course, the book of Revelation, which we would categorize as, as prophecy. So... If we think about the big picture of all, how all this fits together, we can think of it in three ages or dispensations. And these, these ages or dispensations or categories of time uh, describe the type of law that we're under and, and how God deals with us. And we call them the patriarchal, the mosaic, and the Christian ages or dispensations. So when we think about the patriarchal age, we... Uh, we would characterize that as not having a written law. This is, where, this is where God spoke to the fathers of the household. So God spoke to Adam, and, and, and God spoke to Noah and asked him to do these things. God spoke to Abraham. Um, and then we, of course, have uh, that going on, and also the promise to Abraham, a very important part of, of this uh, section. We would have the land promise and the nation promise. Uh, and the, all nations being blessed through his seed, the seed promise. So that's just pointing to Christ. We're going to talk about Christ a lot as we think about this. The second of these three ages would be the Mosaic Age, not referring to Mosaic tile or whatever, but referring to Moses. Uh, maybe that refers to Moses too, I don't know. But the Mosaic Age refers to the, the time of Moses and, his, of course, bringing the Ten Commandments and the... And the uh, the system of worship that involved the tabernacle and the sacrifices there, and then later the temple, uh, similar to the tabernacle. And then, of course, we're probably more familiar or most familiar with what we would call the Christian age, the law of Christ. This is, this is the, the period of time that we're in, uh, A.D. 33 to present. Um, so we'll dig deeper into these. Let's look at the patriarchal age, and um, we'll look at Genesis in this period here. So Genesis, we have, uh, of course, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We have there uh, in, uh, the, the creation of man and, and woman, and, and then the Garden of Eden. And of course, we are probably all familiar with how the tree of life was available there, but then also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the one that was, not, it was prohibited. But of course, Satan came in the form of a serpent and deceived the woman and, and then gave to Adam, and he ate, and so we have sin brought into the world. <clears throat> we have, uh, of course, being sent out of the garden. We have later, as, as, as civilization progresses, that people are evil, and so God needs to bring a flood to cleanse the earth. That's, of course, involving Noah. And then we have, after that, uh, people kind of getting messed up again, and we have the Tower of Babel, where they were trying to make a name for themselves and... and uh, not honor God, and so God intervened and confused their languages, and we have the scattering of the people at that point in time. 
And then we have the covenant with Abraham, the land promise, the nation promise, and then the seed promise. And the seed is Christ. After the covenant of Abraham, we had Jacob in Israel and, and the, the, um, some generations in there, of course, leading to Joseph. And then Joseph uh, being sold into slavery, but then, of course, uh, becomes prominent over time in, in uh, Egypt. And then his brothers, and they're able to be reconciled at the end of, of the book of Genesis. And, and Joseph, even though he was sold into slavery, actually becomes the one that saves them. Of course, that reminds us, of course, of Christ as well. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read in the, in the context of the, the, the man and woman had sinned, and then there's these curses that come upon the man and the woman and the serpent, where, where, where uh, God says, I will put enmity, or, or you, will have, you will be enemies, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And of course, as we are familiar with these things, this refers to Christ and his victory over Satan. The book of Job might not be what you thought it was the next one, but in, in, in chronological, this fits into the patriarchal age. This isn't, this isn't with the temple worship and the sacrifices going on there. This is set back in the patriarchal age. So we have God allowing Satan to test his faithful servant, Job. And then, as Job has all these terrible things happen to him, Job's friends assume that he has sinned and blame him. There's all these conversations about that. But Job remains faithful, and in the end of this book, he's vindicated and actually has blessings restored to him. And we can think about how Christ suffered and was deemed by the world to be, to be a sinner, but yet he was wholly righteous. Reading here uh, from Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, then, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Think about, think about that and the, the depths of his sorrow and suffering that his, his attitude was, well, the Lord has blessed me and the Lord has taken away and the Lord's in charge, blessed be the name of the Lord. That might not be our first reaction, but we can take a good example from Job. So then, jumping to our next broad age here, the Mosaic Age, this, this would be, of course, the largest part of the Old Testament history in terms of writings, certainly. Uh, so this would be talking about Moses and, and the exodus from Egypt, the giving of the law, the period of the judges, and then the period of the kings, including the separated part with Judah and Israel, and then the ultimate exile of both of those groups and the return of Judah. Jesus came during this time, to fulfill the law. So, so you might want to categorize that differently. Why do I have the Gospels in here? Well, certainly the Gospels are Jesus prescribing how we ought to behave ourselves in the Christian age, but Jesus was a Jew, and Jesus was coming into the midst of this 
Mosaic age to bring, to fulfill the law and to bring these new things. So don't let that trip you up. If you disagree with how I do that, we probably actually agree. It's just how do you, how do you slice the, the, the pie there? Um, <clears throat> Christ established, the, the church was established in, in the way I'm thinking about it in, in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where, where we have Christians becoming on the scene. But as Genesis ends there with, with them all being sort of happy in, in uh, Egypt with Joseph having a good position, uh, as we get to Exodus, we sort of pick up the story some maybe a generation or a few later where all the politics has changed in Egypt and now they are not friendly to, to the Israelites. And so they are enslaved and they're in bondage and they're, being, they're suffering. God hears their cry and Moses is sent to deliver them. And of course, we are familiar with the ten plagues that are a part of this story. And, then, and this would be uh, in connection with the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, that the Passover was, was a part of that. The, the, uh, the Passover lamb, and they would put the blood on the, on the doorpost. And then when the angel of death came to take the firstborn, the Israelites were saved, saved in that process. And that, of course, led to the exodus left Egypt. That Pharaoh had had enough at that point. Get out of here. And they left Egypt, but then he changed his mind, and they had the encounter at the, the Red Sea where they were, they were between a rock and a hard place, or between an army of Egyptians and a sea that they could not pass, but yet God is invincible, and there was nothing that could stop God's plan, and so he was able to part the Red Sea, and they were able to pass through and then the Egyptian army was destroyed as they tried to follow them. So as they left Egypt and got through all of that, that's when we have the Ten Commandments being given. And that's where we would kind of draw the line of the Mosaic Age starting. And so at the end of the book of Exodus, we have the tabernacle being established in that, in that system of worship commencing. Of course, we think about the Passover in the New Testament with regard to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, where we read, Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So Christ relates to the Passover here, even in Exodus. The book of Leviticus can be a difficult book with all of the, the details that are in there. It, it covers detailed laws about sacrifices and festivals and, and things about purity and dietary laws. But we can relate that to Christ as well. From Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, and that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ is the perfect sacrifice Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices that had to be repeated, Jesus was able to be our sacrifice once for all. And the theme of Hebrews is better things, better things in Christ. The book of Numbers would come next, and so that would be called the book of Numbers because it starts out by numbering the people, sort of a census, and they uh, spy out the promised land because you know God promised them to go to the land of Canaan. But the spies, uh, most of the spies were un unfaithful and uh, they were afraid, even though God had promised them. This God that had parted the Red Sea and all of these things, well, I don't think we can do that. 
And so, consequently, they were forced to wander in the wilderness and not go into the promised land for 40 years. And one of the things that happened while they were wandering around, that they grumbled lots of different times. And one of the times they grumbled, there were fiery serpents sent, and then Moses was instructed to create a bronze serpent for them to look upon and be healed. And we even see that related to Christ. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Moving to the book of Deuteronomy, in the same, really the same time period, we have a, uh, the name Deuteronomy means second law, not that, not that there's a new law here, but rather sort of the second giving of the law. We have a new generation that needed a review of the law that had, um, after the wilderness wanderings, that the folks that had been initially part of the giving of the law had died, and now these were a new generation needed that to be renewed and, and reviewed for them. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we have Moses dying and Joshua being named as the new leader. And it's interesting that Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy as, as uh, depicted in Matthew chapter 4, when he's tempted by the devil. You know, we, we often point that out. How did Jesus react to the temptation? He quoted Scripture, and he quoted from Deuteronomy. And the three things he quoted were, Man shall not live on, on bread alone, but, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, and you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. So the book of Joshua, of course, as Joshua is installed as the leader now, this, this book picks up his leadership, and they're actually uh, doing the conquest of Canaan. They're going into the promised land, you know, as they were supposed to have done 40 years earlier, but because of their lack of faith, they were, they were forced to wander for those 40 years. <clears throat> and of course, at the end of this book, we see the death of, of Joshua. And a memorable verse uh, that and maybe you, maybe you can anticipate which one I'm going to share from Joshua. Um, we have Joshua chapter 24 verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers uh, that your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And maybe some of us have that printed on something in our home. That should be what each of us say. You know, we live in the world with all these crazy things going on. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Also made a note there that Joshua is actually the same name as Jesus. The Hebrew form of Joshua is Jesus. Same name. It means Savior, which of course is very fitting for both of these Characters, Jesus and Joshua. The book of Judges. So since Joshua died, as we move on through the timeline here, people were without a leader, and so they were falling with idolatry, and then the military campaigns were failing. And so God would raise up judges as leaders throughout this book, and beginning with, uh, the, with the death of, of Joshua, of course. So some of the, these judges, or we might even say prophets, that in this time period would be Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, a woman, notably, 
It's a good story as well to think about that. Gideon, Abimelech, Jephthah, Samson. So if we read from Judges chapter 2, 18 through 19, we, we kind of get a sense of the cycles of these judges and why they were sent and sort of the ups and downs that we get with this. It says in Judges 2, 18, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so this characterizes the, the Israelites at this time. Of course, we have a judge who ever lives to lead us. We don't have a judge that's going to die and, and now we're all lost. We have Christ, and we have his word to lead us. The book of Ruth is said to, have, to be in the time of the judges, as you read that book. So we have Naomi having left the land because of a famine, and then uh, her sons marrying women of the foreign land. And then Naomi's husband and her sons all die, and so she's left with her daughters-in-law. And one of the daughters-in-law, Ruth, this foreign woman, uh, decided to remain with Naomi and return to the land. And so we have the whole situation there with um, the uh, Leverite law where a kinsman is supposed to, to, uh, to marry the widow so that there can be... Um, a continuation of that family from the, the one who had died. And that ends up being Boaz. And it's a lovely story, but it also ties into Christ. Ruth and Boaz are ancestors of David, and then, of course, ultimately Jesus. And we have this, this phrase in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, where, where she is said to be, you are a worthy woman. And this is the same wording that is used in Proverbs 31 of the worthy woman. In fact, some arrangements in the Jewish reckoning of the scriptures, they had Proverbs and then Ruth, and so they, the end of Proverbs 31, and then it would go into the book of Ruth, and that, that connection would be quite visible in that arrangement. Okay, First and Second Samuel. And, you know, it's, we call these First and Second Samuel, but in the, the old days, this was all just one book, but because scrolls You've got to have one scroll and you have another scroll because they're too big. So, the books of Samuel, we have, uh, Samuel was the last judge. So he's not in the book of Judges, but he's still a judge. He's the last judge. And then we have people reject Samuel's leadership. And then, you know, Samuel's a little torn up about that, but God points out that they're rejecting me. They're rejecting God as their king. That's, that's why they didn't have a king. They had judges, basically these prophets, to lead the people. And God is the king, but God accommodates them in this. And so Samuel is tasked to anoint the, the, the new king, and he anoints Saul at the direction of God. But Saul is shown to be unrighteous and fails to follow God and loses that position. And then Samuel anoints David. Of course, we're familiar with 
more familiar with David perhaps. 1 Samuel 13.14 But now your Saul, your kingdom, shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man, referring to David, a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. First and second Kings. We have uh, this developing Saul, uh, David's son Solomon. And, and Solomon as king had the, the largest of the territory that, that the uh, Israelites ever had. And he was the greatest king and the wealthiest king and a number of superlatives we could say about, about Solomon. Solomon builds the temple after his death. His foolish son uh, does not manage things well, and the kingdom is divided. So we have the north and the south. The north we refer to as Israel, and the south we refer to as Judah. And Israel was very bad. The kings were terrible and very ungodly and worshiping idols and doing all these terrible things. And uh, Judah was kind of mostly bad. <laughs> there were you know, a lot of kids. So trying to summarize this, there were... Uh, there were some bright spots, but there was a lot of bad. We have uh, the prophets Elijah and Elisha doing, doing their activities in this book, or these books. Most notably, thinking about Elijah and the contest on Mount Carmel with, with Baal and, and the, the um, fire brought down from heaven. And of course, the Baal worshippers in vain tried to have that work out and were shown to be fools. And then Elijah was able to bring down fire, have God bring down fire, and show him to be the true God. So as the time goes through, this is a this is a long book, and, and over the course of time, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, is is taken into Assyrian captivity, and from what I can study and understand, they never return. Those those ten tribes. They know, there's no story where they come back. But, but then later, we have Babylon exiling, taking into captivity Judah, the southern kingdom. And, and we do, of course, have, have them returning later. First and Second Chronicles. So this was written, this is covering kind of the same material as... as uh, Samuel and Kings, but this is written after Judah returns from exile. So that may seem redundant, uh, but it's sort of similar to how we might think of the four gospel writers. You know, well, why do we have four books that, that talk about the life of Jesus? And, you know, the answer to that is they each have different areas of focus. Uh, they aren't uh, exact carbon copies of each other, and there's different areas of focus. And in our Sunday morning study, we're going to get into that uh, and and. See, see some of those different areas of focus. So if we look at 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14, referring to David, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And I would suggest to you that this is a prophecy fulfilled partially in Solomon, building the house for God, but some of these established forever kind of things, I believe, refer to Christ. The book of Psalms is actually five books, and sometimes in your Bible it will note that as you go through the different portions of that. Um, it's a collection of 150 songs. We might call it a hymnal or a songbook. You know, we have our uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That may be something for us to relate to. Not that I'm canonizing our songbook, uh, but, but as far as something for us to relate to, to think how this was used. And contains songs of joy and laments, you know, sad, sadness, uh, blessings and thanksgivings. Seventy of these psalms are attributed to David. Uh, and we see a lot of these things relating to Christ. Jesus quotes and fulfills uh, Psalm 22 on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is from Psalm 22, verse 1, but very familiar to us from Christ's word, words on the cross. The book of Proverbs. Proverbs is written by Solomon and others. There's some other attributions later in that book. Mostly these would be characterized as wise sayings, little short wise sayings. Some of these are like one verse that kind of stands alone, sometimes two. There's some areas where a chapter fits together, but a lot of it is these small wise sayings. Proverbs 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now that first chapter does go on to a broader, make some broader points, but I think this verse characterizes the type of lessons we get from Proverbs, focusing on wisdom and knowledge and fearing the Lord and honoring God, and, and a lot of times the contrast between fools and being wise and this sort of thing. Ecclesiastes, also written by Solomon, focuses on the meaning of life. A lot of people wring their hands today, what's the meaning of life? Well, we have a book that really explains that for us. One of the themes of the book is vanity and emptiness, and as a result of that, the advice is enjoy the simple pleasures in life. You know, you do work with your hands. Like Caleb made uh, pretzels. I'm not sure what's cool, <laughs> you know. That's those little things where, you, hey, I made this, and these are good, and this is fun. You know, enjoy those things. God blesses us with these kind of things. But above all, fear God. And if we look at the, the end of the book, we kind of get that from Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Song of Solomon was a big writer. He wrote, or Solomon was a big writer. He wrote Song of Solomon. Uh, and I think I would describe this as a passionate love poem. Um, different views on how to interpret this, this writing. It's, it's a, considered by many a metaphor for the relationship between God and his people, and certainly we, we see that sort of thing borne out even in the New Testament, the bride of Christ and, and using the church 
It's a metaphor, or marriage is a metaphor for the church and vice versa, these kind of things. One example of the, the types of writings here, Sol- Song of Solomon 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. It's said that uh, the Jewish people would not let their kids read this until they were 18 or something like that. So I don't know whether that's true, but there's some things that get kind of uh, interesting in the book of Song of Solomon. Isaiah. He's, uh, again, we're jumping in time here now. Uh, he's one of our major prophets. Isaiah warned Judah and Israel as we're looking you know, toward these exiles that, that are going to happen. And he also foretold of the suffering servant. Very familiar passage from Isaiah 53. We read in the context of the Lord's Supper very frequently. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who was pierced for our transgressions? Christ. I hope I'm saying Christ a lot. This is, I think, the theme of the Bible. It all leads to Christ. Jeremiah. He's called the weeping prophet. And we're jumping ahead in time here again. Note that on our timeline. The weeping prophet. He's, he prophesied of the coming Babylonian captivity. We're getting pretty imminent on that now. One of the things we read in Jeremiah 33, verse 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Who is the root and the offspring of David? Well, we've been even seeing that in our Revelation study. This is Christ, the Lamb of God. Lamentations. Again, Jeremiah, our weeping prophet, wrote this as well. This is characterized as a a collection of funeral dirges uh, or a eulogy, sort of mourning the loss of of the temple and of Jerusalem itself and, and even the whole nation to Babylon, to Babylonian. Babylonian captivity. And this verse here from Lamentations 4, verse 5, sort of illustrates the depths to which the people fell uh, in the context of the siege leading to to their loss. The people who once ate the richest foods now beg in the streets for anything they can get. Those who once wore the finest clothes now search the garbage dumps for food. A very striking image of contrast there. Lamentation. The book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is exiled in Babylon, so we're moving a little ahead in time here where they're exiled now. Ezekiel is exiled in Babylon, but not all the destruction yet has happened back back home in uh, Israel. 
Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of the Lord. In some ways, this is reminiscent and helpful for us to understand books like Revelation because of some of the similar types of imagery. He uh, warns the people to repent. There's more judgment to come, which does come to Jerusalem and also points to a future hope. And one of the cool things from uh, Ezekiel 37, verse 4 through 6, is the valley of the dry bones. And there's even that song that maybe, I, maybe younger people don't even know. <laughs> them bones, them bones, them dry bones. I've heard of it. I don't know. But anyway, it refer, that's where this is sort of drawn from. Um, let's just read this. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the to these dry bones, to these bones, and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And what this is about in the context is is that uh, even though they're in exile, there's future hope. They're going to be renewed and they'll be able to, to be a nation again. But I can't help but think we're, we're promised a resurrection. We have loved ones dead in the grave. I'm probably going to be dead in the grave someday. And I hope, and, that's, and that by the word hope, that's an expectation. I expect that when Christ returns, I will be risen from the dead in the resurrection. It's sort of like what they're describing here. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. He, he rose from the dead. He did that already. So this reminds me of Christ. Daniel, again, in Babylonian exile, the context for Daniel. He is a, he is, he's been taken to Babylon. We uh, read about his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace for their faith. So the lesson of Daniel is, in the face of adversity, remain faithful. As an older man, Daniel, again, for his faith, uh, for, for praying to God instead of worshiping whatever false things they wanted him to do, Daniel is thrown into a lion's den, and God just like the, his friends in the fiery furnace, saves him. He shuts the mouths of those lions and they don't take him. And then the people that accused him were thrown in there. The lions were hungry. It wasn't because the lions weren't hungry. God was intervening. The prophetic visions, uh, again, this is similar to some things we think about Revelation. We have the 70 weeks and this reference to Messiah and things to come. If we look at uh, the fiery furnace situation here, Daniel 3, 24 through 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up with haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They answered and said to the king, True, true, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And there's debate about who that fourth one is. Probably an angel. Some, you know, the son of God kind of makes you think of Christ. 
we think of Christ. Esther, in exile, again, like Daniel, during the exile, a Jewish girl ends up becoming queen there in, in Persia. Kind of a reversal of fortune for her, not unlike some things that Joseph went through. But the enemies of the Jews, not knowing that Esther is a Jew, seek to have all the Jews killed, and then Esther is able to save the Jewish people through her courage and her ingenuity and her faith. And then one of the things about this book that sometimes is pointed out, the, the word, the name of God, not mentioned in the book. But, but God is in the book. Esther 4.14, when she's debating about what she should do about, well, I, maybe I could help, but I'm, I could risk my life to try to save the Jewish people. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to, this, to the kingdom for such a time as this. And isn't that maybe whatever situation we're in, the, the different opportunities and challenges we face, we're, are we perhaps wherever we are exactly for such a time as this? It's not exactly answered. It's a rhetorical question, but I think the answer is yes. God has a plan for each of us, and we need to honor Him with whatever resources and opportunities we have. God provides for the faithful. Ezra and Nehemiah is considered one book, but we break it up into two. Um, it's about the return of the Judah exiles. We have Zerubbabel coming back in one wave to rebuild the temple, and we have Nehemiah coming back to rebuild the walls, and we have Ezra, Ezra coming back to kind of rebuild the faith, to, to teach the word. And then the poor old minor prophets always get shortchanged, and I shortchange them a little bit too. The Jewish reckoning uh, of that was, well, that's the 12. and That was all one book or one scroll or whatever. Uh, so we're not going to necessarily get a quote from each of these. But the minor prophets, these shorter writings that the prophet, some of these prophets had, their warnings uh, to Judah and Israel. So you look at the time frame. This is a broader time frame. We're kind of... We're not just at or after the exile. We're kind of looking broadly before and after and during. So warnings to Judea and Israel and, and other nations to repent. The books that we include in this are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And of course, I feel like the most well-known one there is Jonah whole situation with Nineveh and getting swallowed by a fish and all of that. But I will look at, uh, we'll, we'll grab jo Joel here because we use that in Acts chapter 2, or Peter uses Joel in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men 
shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And of course, this is, this is part of that sermon that Peter's giving that leads to the gospel call on the first Christians there in Jerusalem. So then on our chart, we have this weird spot where there isn't really anything that relates to it. And, and, and really, so there's 400 years in there that uh, there aren't any biblical writings that we have that we consider scripture. So what's the deal? What happened there? Nothing happened? Well, we have a number of things that, that help us explain what's going on in the New Testament. We have the rise of the Greeks and the rise of the Greek language. And the, the uh, Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, and it's used by the New Testament writers frequently. We have uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, this foreign invader that invaded the temple and did all kinds of horrible things, including sacrificing a pig and pouring the pig blood everywhere, making everything unclean and ruining the temple, and everyone got all upset, leading to the Maccabean Revolt. And ultimately, they were successful in, in thwarting this outside force, and we have what's called the Feast of Dedication, and even to people today, Jewish people, celebrate Hanukkah around December, relates to, to these events. And even in the book of John, we have a reference to the Feast of Dedication. So this isn't just some weird modern thing. Um, this is something that has context even in the New Testament. We have the rise of these different sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We have the rise of some military powers after the Greeks, the Romans, and Herod would be local to, to Judea. And we have the, the use of the synagogue. We didn't really read about the synagogue earlier, but in, by the time we get to the New Testament, we have this common practice of Jews meeting in a synagogue, which was helpful for Paul then to use that in his teaching. So, if we jump into the Gospels here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel means the good news, the good news about Jesus, how he came, and he provided all this teaching. He died as our sacrifice, he paid the price for our sins, and he rose from the dead, gave us that assurance of the resurrection. John 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's all about Christ. So this is where I'm saying the Christian age begins at this point, or, or right after this point. The law of Christ that we're under today, A.D. 33 to present, we have the Acts of the Apostles covering the history, the establishment of the church, and the spreading of the gospel in the church, the Christian age. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know, this is, this is more of Peter's sermon, that first sermon where he quoted Joel earlier. Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's the call. For those of us that are Christians, that's the call we've answered today. If you're not a Christian, 
God's calling. So as we advance through uh, our thinking of this timeline, the book of Acts covers all these different churches where different people were, you know, Paul was involved in preaching and establishing churches, and then there's these letters that sort of correspond to them. So these kind of fall on the same time frame. So Paul has these letters to churches. One example, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And I felt like this was sort of representative of the kind of thing Paul's trying to set the folks straight, and sometimes there's to be a letter from them or a report from someone to help, help him know what to, to address there. And then we would have a section of Paul's letters we call the pastoral letters to, to Timothy and Titus to teach them how to, to be ministers. One example from 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, I am writing these things to you, Timothy, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how, you, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The purpose of those were to help those guys establish healthy and sound churches. And then I'm categorizing Philemon as its own little thing, as a personal letter. He wrote it to this Philemon. Um, and the message was, treat Onesimus well. Onesimus was his slave that apparently had run away. And, and then uh, Philemon, it's interesting, Onesimus' name means useful. And so there's a little bit of a play on words in, in the letter. Philemon, verses 10 and 11. I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. So since, since Onesimus had run away, apparently, there was concern that if he went back home and tried to make things right, it might not go well for him. So Paul is appealing to make that all work better. And then we have all the other letters. We call them general letters, Hebrews. You can argue about who wrote that. It's pretty much anonymous. We have uh, James and Peter and John and Jude writing letters. We have um, Peter and John are apostles, and James and Jude are said to be brothers of Jesus, which is to say sons of Joseph and Mary. James was a leader in the church. Of course, the letter of James focuses on... Uh, Faith without works is dead. We're justified by works and not by faith alone. Um, Jude, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write, to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord 
Jesus Christ and the characteristic of the types of messages these letters contain. Then the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. I know this is a bit of a long lesson. I appreciate you paying attention and playing along here. The book of Revelation was written by John. And it is, it is a prophecy and it's an apocalyptic literature. We've been fortunate enough to study that here in our adult lesson, our adult Bible class recently. So the church, in the midst of fierce persecution at this time, they get the message, the simple message that God wins, and if you remain faithful, you will win too. Revelation 17, 14. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome. The Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. So the purpose of this, as I said, was to bring structure and simplicity to try to get a big picture of how all this stuff fits together because it's a complicated book. Take a chronological view. And I hope that we've seen Christ in the Bible here tonight. We're maybe places that we haven't looked before. And again, from Acts chapter 2, the first gospel sermon is still the gospel sermon of today. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you have not done that, we invite you to do that. If there's sin in your life as a Christian and you want help, prayers of the church, we invite you to, to come and take part of that. We, whatever way we can help you, we invite you to come. I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love.